Hello, listeners, and welcome to The Museum Worker, a podcast series within CAA Conversations, brought to you by the College Art Association's Museum Committee and CAA Podcasts. The Museum Worker is a podcast about pathways to careers in museums that features candid conversations with professionals in the field. They share how they got where they are today, what they do, and the role of diversity, equity, access, and inclusion in day-to-day work, as well as hopes for the future of the field. I'm Erica Warren, your host and a member of CAA's Museum Committee. Today's focus is on those working in museum education, engagement, and outreach, and I'm delighted to introduce our esteemed guests, Lisa Abia-Smith, Director of Education at the University of Oregon's Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art and Senior Instructor in the College of Design in the School of Planning, Public Policy, and Management. Hello, Lisa. Good morning. Erica Hubbard, Director of Chicago Programs at the Obama Foundation in Chicago. Hello, Erica. Good morning. And Nanette Luar-Kashoff, Managing Director of Learning and Engagement at the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art in Los Angeles. Hi, Nanette. Hello, thanks for having me. So thank you all so much for agreeing to participate in this conversation. To start us off, I wonder if you can all please share your professional story or journey as it relates to how you landed where you are today. Right. Well, I'll I'll dive in. Um, this is Lisa, and I started my journey um, as a graduate student in San Francisco in the Bay Area around the early 90s. And like most museum educators, I put myself through graduate school working various jobs. I was at the Jewish Museum of San Francisco, the Oakland Museum, and I finally landed a full-time job as an art educator at the Rose Resnick Lighthouse for the Blind. And at that point, I was putting myself through graduate school at JFK University, earning my master's in museum studies. But my clients were uh, adults that had visual impairment or various disabilities. My clients were also young men. This is the you know late 80s, early 90s, young men with um, AIDS and HIV. And so they were nearing death. And my role was to work um, as an art educator and help them process end of life through stories and objects. Um, so simultaneously, as I'm doing this, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passing in 1992. Um, I ended up carving a niche for myself um, in the Bay Area, consulting for various museums on accessibility. Uh, and then in 1995, uh, was given a position, a joint position, starting the nation's first master's degree concentration in museum studies for visitors with disabilities. And that was at Buffalo State College, uh, a joint appointment with the Birchfield Penny Art Museum. Uh, did that for three years as a visiting professor and then moved to Oregon, where I've been for the past 25 years as the director of education and a professor in the College of Design. I can jump in next. Um, this is Erica. My uh, career is actually a bit non-traditional and my path has been non-traditional, I think, for the museum space. Um, I actually started my career in public relations and then marketing. My degree is actually in journalism, although my parents uh, claimed that I majored in campus at Howard University. <laughs> I, was, I was all over the place, you know. Um, I was drawn to programming in that space you know, definitely at Howard University, um, you know, from on-campus programming, 
that, you know, included performances, uh, talks, you know, with the student body. Um, I was head of public relations, you know, for our student body. That was that was my space, you know. It was, uh, I think, an early pathway to engagement, um, which is what I do now. But again, you know, not something I look to um, happen in a museum space at all. And so my father's good friend, who's like an uncle to me, he was a teacher and a painter. And so I had been introduced to the art space um, at a pretty young age. I started collecting art, putting together art shows, um, you know, assisting with my sororities, art shows and fairs. But it wasn't until 2014, um, one of my sorority sisters came across a role at the Art Institute of Chicago that actually changed the course of my life. It was as if my worlds collided. Uh, in, a, in a way that I never even assumed or imagined um, they could. You know, so I took a position with the Art Institute of Chicago in their marketing department while also supporting the programming work of the museum's leadership advisory committee, uh, which is the African-American advisory group that advised the museum across the board um, from hiring to programming, you know, uh, to staffing. And so it gave me an opportunity to really not only work in the art space, but really make an impact in the communities, um, especially the communities where I came from. This is Nanette, I'll jump in. Um, I it, It's interesting to think about my journey in, in relation to where I am today, because in many ways it I have come full circle because I, so I work at the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art, which is um, a museum that's under construction right now in Los Angeles. But I really started my journey in the arts across the street when I did my undergraduate degree at USC. And when I started at USC, and that was 25, I graduated 25 years ago uh, this year. When I started, I was pre-med. I I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon for the NFL. That was my dream. (laughs) But... The first woman, that was my goal. That was my goal. Uh, and I um, went to the wrong class on the wrong day uh, at the beginning of my, my second semester. And it was an art history class, not, an, not a chemistry class. And it was that kind of dumb luck that led to where I am now. I mean, I think it's luck um, and chance, but it was also a kind of openness that I had then that I think I still have about the different ways that I could grow. Um, And my interest in art history was really sparked. It was both the aesthetics and the kind of inspiration that I found in the art itself, but also really art history as a tool, as a kind of method um, or discipline that I could use to understand myself and the world and our country that I, and for me, it was both excitement about learning how to unpack images and also opening up access to that power that has driven me uh, to where I am today. And, you know, as a first-generation American on my father's side, art history was not a path that was um, understood to be one that you could find success and have a life in. And so I really had to chart my own way through this space 
thanks to peers and mentors, but also just uh, a willingness to take risks. And I think that that led me to say yes to a lot of untraditional opportunities in the arts. You know, to take this role, I stepped away from a very established institution. And I think even, um, I, I love Lisa that how you talked about how your different jobs, putting yourself through grad school. I always had three jobs doing various kinds of things, but I think it really opened me up to learning more about people, about people who may not take the arts as a given in their lives. So I have moved around the country a lot and then, you know, I uh, had curatorial fellowships, research fellowships. I did all, I did the kind of traditional path at the same time. I did the, hit the milestones, um, got a PhD, um, had internships. And then I think also I benefited from um, some of the, what they used to call minority fellowships or multicultural internships. Some of the first ones like the Getty and that the St. Louis Art Museum offered um, the Romare Bearden Fellowship, and these were all in the early, the mid '90s uh, and early 2000s. So it was really a time in the field when there was a burgeoning awareness of the need to diversify the voices uh, in museums. And I think that we're, I'm continuing that work today. Well, thank you all for um, being so generous and sharing your experiences, and and also what I am hearing is kind of. Um, that there's like a real medley of of uh the sort of things that have shaped where you are today and i'm wondering if there's anything you wish you had known before of you know embarked on on this journey or followed this path i think you know i love the hearing everyone's journey and talk, you talked eric about this sort of collision and also nanette this sort of openness i think we all follow this trajectory that was we knew we had to follow this path, but we were very open to finding nuances where I think our passions lay. And I think, you know, looking back in terms of, you know, what I wish I would have known, you know, I was at the height of my grad school, working with people with disabilities, working with these sort of non, non-traditional audiences. The ADA had passed, the Americans with Disabilities Act had passed. And I think I wish I would have realized that here we are in 2023 and we have not made a lot of changes in terms of structure and systems. And I think my own naivete was by the time I'm in my career, 10, 15 years, I won't have these battles. We won't have these fights. So I think I wish I would have been a little bit more realistic to understand that this is a career lifelong journey of finding access, inclusion, and equality. I love that. I would say I grew up in a house with two parents that were really passionate about history and really passionate about Black history. My mom actually grew up in Bronzeville, where I am, where I live now, um, and would tell me about just the culture of Bronzeville. You know, I grew up hearing a lot about the Harlem Renaissance. And then, you know, she would tell me stories of the Chicago Renaissance that she had heard of. And it made me fall in love with, you know, some of the local artists, the artists that works right here in Chicago, the Charles White, the Elzir Couture, the Margaret Burroughs, Elizabeth Catlett. And so art became not just something to look at, you know, it was a part of me. It's our, it's our history. And so I wish I'd known growing up the behind the scenes 
at a museum or in these art spaces, you know, just different positions. Um, that's one of the things that I really try to do with my work and engagement, um, especially when it gets to, you know, our young folks that are interested in creative spaces and roles. It's just so that they understand, uh, even those who are not, you know, interested in creative paths. But I want folks to understand that there's careers um, in finance at a museum. There's accounting, there's writing, there's publishing, there's there's so there's there's such a vast array of positions that you can be a part of in these spaces. And I wish I had known that. I think I would have entered the museum space a lot earlier. You know, I probably would have pursued curatorial, you know, at some point, but I just had no idea. It wasn't art museums was not something that we didn't take field trips to the Art Institute of Chicago. As a, a student in Chicago, in the south suburbs of Chicago, we would take field trips to the Planetarium, the Museum of Science and Industry, the Field Museum. But I had never, my first trip to the Art Institute of Chicago was on my own as a 14-year-old kid wanting to see Carrie James Marshall in real life. Because I had seen the image of his work, I think it was like in Ebony Magazine. And so that was that was my my first you know, time going down to this art museum and being in this space. And so had I known more um, about the space, I don't know if my life would be any different, but I think it probably would have started uh, my career a bit earlier. But I appreciate all the loops and turns that have happened along the way. Yeah, and I, I think that, Erica, your story or at least the kind of acceptance of the loops and the turns, you know, relates to what what I wanted to share. And I think that for kind of emerging professionals or mid-career professionals, I wish I would have known that success, you define what success looks like for you. This is, the art world is so, de- is so defined by pedigree, prestige, exclusive, opportunities, you know, whether you went to an Ivy League, whether you teach at an Ivy League, where you work. And I I think sometimes I bought in and didn't always feel that I have, you know, I don't have that pedigree. But I think as a result, and, and, and as a result, sometimes I felt like I was starting from behind, I was catching up. Because I do think that those, getting entry into those spaces offers opportunities uh, opportunity that you don't get in other places. At the same time, I think I grew as a person and had incredibly meaningful, rich experiences because I didn't need to follow that path of the of other people's success um, all the time. And so I think that that there isn't a path <laughs> is really the bottom line. I think you're hearing that from all of us as well that thinking about your trajectory is important and and identifying your values and and what's ultimately core to to who you are, what your special interests are, and where you can make a difference and an impact and a contribution. Um, But it doesn't, you don't have to measure that against anybody else. That's such a lovely point. And I, yeah, I completely agree. I thought a little bit about kind of like pathways um, and um, sort of, you know, 
information that maybe might be hopefully helpful. Um, and now I want to think about the kind of work itself and, you know, what, what do you three believe are the biggest challenges facing workers um, in museum education, engagement, and outreach um, uh, in the current moment? Well, you know, Nanette was talking about these conventional ways that sometimes we feel we have to look at. And I think this idea that there is one path, and I think that speaks a lot to structures and convention. And I think, you know, the biggest challenge facing museum workers, particularly museum educators, is there is a system that doesn't allow for change, that there is a system that needs to be dismantled. And I think a lot of times when you're in these positions, you feel like you are swimming upstream, you're going against some conventional system. And that also becomes personal. I mean, we enter this field because much of our passion is tied to this work. It's it's our identity and uh, it's you, you have to you have to take a lot of hits. So I think trying to move up against, again, a system that still is hierarchical um, is difficult. Yeah, and also the the burnout that can come from those numerous hits and getting back up and and the many hours, the high volume of programs um, that all of us take on without a lot of downtime um, and also the relatively low pay, uh, not only in for educators, but in museums more broadly. You know, pay isn't everything and that's not why we get into this business, but it definitely helps when you're not struggling at home uh, the way you have it, the way you have to push against the systems at work as well. And I think that, you know, for educators in particular, it, it's they're often trying to drive the change of a whole institution and they aren't always in the right in the most effective position to do so um, because of those structures. Um, and I think that, you know, they there's that that lack of feeling not that lack of empowerment. Um, can also lead to to burnout. And it's funny too, because I think sometimes that kind of, we develop chips on our shoulders against the system, the institution that we work in even, and that can further inhibit the productive change we can make sometimes. It's a lot of mindset involved in that as well, um, but the burnout is the worst. Yeah, I was gonna, I have to agree. Um, burnout is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, definitely money. I think burnout and money might be neck and neck here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, resources, you know, I've been in spaces where few people on the education team even leave the building, uh, which prevents them from evolving in their work, um, getting to know and truly understand the communities that they're working in and working with. Um, might I add diversity? Mm -hmm. You know, it's tough to be a woman in these spaces, um, even tougher sometimes it feels to be a Black woman. Um, for so many reasons, you know, you don't see many people in leadership that looks like you. Um, you may not always feel seen, supported. It can feel lonely, you know, in these spaces. And so, no, I would absolutely agree to those. So with those kind of challenges in mind and and just, you know, the whole kind of picture of your work, if, if resources and bureaucracy were not an issue... <laughs> let's imagine, um, what changes would you prioritize for museum education, learning and engagement um, and outreach departments? You know, Eric, I'm, I'm glad that you talked about the need to leave the building. The, the first thing that I thought of was that was a kind of consistent support for, for and the expectation of professional development on the one hand, and also of 
event attendance, meeting attendance, community presence. I think that what happens in the building is often so privileged, yet in our work, there has to be a porousness between the museum and the the community in which it's embedded for the work to be successful. So it is a form of research that's important to our practice and should be given the space, time, and resources to cultivate that. And then also I would um, pay more. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to pick up on that that thought, Nanette. It's true. I think with curators, there's a lot of investment in terms of research and doing that work. But for museum educators, we need to cultivate relationships, and that can only take place outside the museum with our communities. It's a lot of investment that we're building, a lot of trust, and that requires us to be out and to be there and to be present in these communities. So I would change the way that our work is viewed. I would also change a structure in terms of museum educators being siloed and not being at the table when we're planning uh, exhibitions from the beginning, when we are debriefing exhibitions and programs at, at the end and evaluating, there needs to be a system where we are seamless as part of these decisions. And I think a lot of times in some museums, the museum educators are marginalized or ostracized from that process. Lisa and Annette, you've you've hit it. You know, it's it's not much I can add to that. Um, it's everything I was thinking and wanting to say. The fact that when you look at a museum and those who are the most public facing, it's not the museum education workers. And they should be. They are the ones that are working with the public once they come into the building. And I've always found like, you know, they were the the ugly stepchildren, you know, just kind of off to the side. Like I agree, Lisa, that they should be at the table. I agree that they should, you know, be paid more. It's almost as if the work is not as supported and appreciated. Uh, sometimes that's a curatorial work is. Yeah, so I, I agree hands down. Not being the afterthought, right? Like you said, this this sort of that, that stepchild analogy. But again, being being valued from the beginning in terms of how you're paid and how you're seen within your institution. Yeah, and, and, and to add to that, I would also say museums have to do a better job of understanding and recognizing the impact of that work. I don't think museums have figured that out. You know, they can measure the number of people that come to see an exhibition, uh, but they don't understand truly the impact of the work that's happening in those spaces and how it's changing, changing culture, changing, you know, it's impacting people holistically. And we're not doing a great job of showing that. To that end, I, I think that supporting evaluation, evaluation and research as part of the work of uh, learning and engagement departments. And as the institution as a whole, you know, we're becoming more data-driven, decisions being made based on data, but there isn't, there aren't always the same kinds of resources given to that kind of impact, that researching the impact that we make, uh, the social impact, the educational impact, community impact. And I think that if I had all the resources um, and decision-making power in the world, I would build out a research arm um, that could be partners in our work to not only help us understand the impact we're making, but understand how we how we can do our work better. I love that. Yeah. I mean, and the work should not only become important when there's donors asking, you know, what are we doing in the community or, you know, how are we supporting the public or, you know, how are we working with the local school district? That's when you notice that 
you know, you get that tap. Oh, you know, provide this, provide that. We need numbers. And that shouldn't be the only time is, you know, it's recognized. Right. There's such a disconnect between the quality and the quantity. And I think as museum educators, you both alluded to this idea that we have stories. We are able to bear witness to the power of the object on the visitor. And so much of our process is just doing and not being able to pull back disseminate those stories, write those stories, having marketing involved and getting those stories out into the community. Those are highly impactful. And there is a value there that will serve the museum through funding if donors hear about those stories. So again, it's a systematic awareness. Can I just put one plug in for the the journal of our field, the Journal of Museum Education? I agree. There's, it is so tough to, to publish that work, and it, but it's so important. This is our, the one, you know, the one journal dedicated to museum education. So please, if you are an educator and you're doing amazing work, please look that up and uh, submit. I'm on the, I just joined the Museum Education Roundtable Board of Directors that publishes the journal. So, <laughs> but there are these great opportunities to engage with your colleagues in the field, either in publishing or through these other organizations. And, and it's just, that's one way to help stem uh, the, that burnout is to really, and it's another way to get outside the walls of your one institution to get a new perspective. So in, in the conversation about impact and in an earlier sort of discussion, we've, we've already touched on this next question a little bit, uh, which is a kind of two-parter. Um, has your institution committed to diversity, equity, and accessibility, and inclusion? And if so, how has slash does this institutional pledge impact your daily work as well as longer term initiatives in your um, department or area of responsibility? And then if not, can you share what you know about this choice and what your institution is prioritizing and why? I'll jump in. Um, so I'm I'm at the Obama Foundation, um, I'd just say slash Obama Presidential Center um, <laughs> in 2025. Uh, I would say absolutely. I appreciate that in my current organization, it doesn't feel like a box check, um, but rather it's natural. It's a part of our everyday conversations, our plans. And for me, it allows me to be in a space where not only I do my work, but I feel encouraged and supported in doing so. Absolutely. I feel no tokenism. And I felt that, you know, in other organizations. And so, so yeah, I was absolutely say that's a part of our, uh, our work. I can also jump in and, and say as a, you know, as a new organization, the Lucas Museum of Narrative Arts also opening 2025. I agree. I, I think that as a new institution, we don't really, DEAI is not something that we've signed on to. It's part of who we are. It's part of how we do this work. It's part of the institution that we're building. It's, and it's a constant learning process. And we also talk about it a lot and we add a B to the DEAI, we add B belonging as an ultimate outcome uh, for this work as well, um, not only for our visitors, but for the people who work for the museum. And I work with colleagues who are really focused on helping us be, be accountable to measuring that impact and how much of a benefit we are to our communities that might be um, whether we're hiring locally uh, from from Los Angeles, whether 
we're working, you know, I've been in interviews with consultants or vendors, and we always ask about the makeup of their leadership and their commitments to DEAI because we feel like we want to work with partners who share our values. We, you know, in developing programs now, we're, you know, we're taking equity is a lens that we're holding up to everything. Um, When we're thinking about access and allocation of resources, we're thinking about, you know, bilingual signage and interpretation and an awareness of where we are, where we're building this museum, uh, predominantly Spanish speaking neighborhood in, you know, in, in a city like LA. And so I think it's not just learning and engagement programming that really is sees DEAI as part of our work, but it's across the institution. In my institution, I arrived, as I said, 25 years ago, and it wasn't the case. I'm working at a university art museum that was very traditional. It was founded in the late 30s um, with by appointment only. And there was there's no door, you know, windows in the front. So it was very elitist. I've seen an entire sea change, although it's been slow, um, but looking at in terms of, you know, how leadership has changed our institution and the commitment particularly the fast, you know, the last five years, uh, we now ha- are saying DEAI. You know, I was always the one saying, where's the A? We, where, where's the access? But it's been, again, it's been the responsibility and uh, the, the, you know, the privilege to see people coming in this institution working. So you're not the only one at the table arguing and fighting. Uh, it seems to be st- staff-wide. And also priorities at our institution have been able to change. We've been able to let go of programs that don't serve the mission and don't honor DEAI and doing work that is pushing forward racial equality, social justice. And there's buy-in from our administration, our board, our leadership council, and our donors to help support that. And I was going to add to that, just listening to Lisa and Annette, and um, I do want to add in perhaps how this is different um, and why I I think that it's not just a box check. When I look around the table, there's diversity at the table. There's diversity of voices and backgrounds and experiences at the table. And I feel like those voices are able to speak up, add to these various conversations. And so that's why there's this natural ability, you know, to be diverse, to be equitable, you know, to be accessible. I'm looking at, we had an update recently about, um, to Nanette's point about building, you know, the museum in LA and making sure even the, the vendors are reflective of the community that we're building in. We're building on the South side of Chicago, building in Woodlawn. I went to high school directly across the street from this future presidential site. We have over 50% of our contracts for our construction are diverse vendors. I think it's over 30% of the workers are from the South and West sides of the city. Over 150, you know, construction jobs are, are being landed on like to residents being placed in various positions, you know, in the construction field and that space. So I think it's really important to recognize the diversity in the people that not just diversity in the work, but diversity in the people. Because again, if you're looking around the table and you don't see that diversity, I don't think it, 
I think it does become that box check or it doesn't happen. And the, the intention that you have to bring to the work every single day in the structures that you build and in that in the extra time that sometimes it takes to find a diverse vendor. And I don't, I think museums traditionally haven't wanted to take that time. There's such a culture of productivity and urgency. We're often meeting so many simultaneous deadlines that to go back to issue another RFP because you didn't get a diverse pool of uh, submissions for whatever work you're doing, or to think about, you know, to do another layer of networking with, uh, you know, in your hiring to ensure that your posting is reaching diverse individuals and networks. I mean, that all takes extra work and extra time. So it really does require, you know, you're restating that commitment to this work every, every day with everything that you do. I agree. I mean, it also, that work begins before you issue that RFP. You know, that work begins with establishing relationships, you know, throughout these communities. Anytime someone tells me they can't find something in a community, I assume either one, you don't know the right people to talk to, or two, you're simply being lazy because the resources are there. The people are there. I mean, in Chicago, you have so many neighborhood chambers that you can tap. You can stand in front of those neighborhood chambers. Most of them have monthly meetings and get a sense of what vendors are available, you know, in the city and that in that very community. You know, so as you said, Nanette, it's, it's about doing the work. It's about doing the work. It's about, as you said, it's not checking those boxes. It's finding space every day in our work, finding space to make these relationships, finding space to find the time to look at your vendors. You were talking earlier, Erica, about your exposure, your your non-exposure to museums. And I, I think about a program we have at the museum called World of Work, which targets middle school and high school students, students of color. And it's a paid internship where they are understanding the museum as career path. And we are now hiring one of the the students from 10 years ago. It's building those relationships. And our work needs to be able to, regardless of which department, to be able to have that time and space to commit. And again, build these, these trusting relationships with our community. I love that. I... Uh, so appreciate this this meditation on on kind of time and kind of like um Nanette mentioned like urgency and really kind of the the sort of need to um push up against that and I think you all raised that and really kind of a a, a dedication right so there are so many you know challenges in this in in the work that you're doing um but we see like the possibility um for for what the outcomes can be um when there is kind of a real investment and, and maybe a resistance of some of the much embedded um, structures of, of, of institutions. So although we talked about how having more time and space is helpful, I'm going to ask you a question now that perhaps counters that, which is if you could sum up your position in, in one sentence and, and your position in, in terms of thinking about the work that you do, what would that, what might that sentence be? I have one word. I'm going to use connector. I, I think my work has always been to, um, and that's where my passion has been, uh, to serve as connector, a connector to from the organization to the community. 
from the community to the organization. That's that's my role. That's the work that I do. It's, it's bridging that for many folks and the communities on the south and west sides of Chicago have not felt that connection to these various museums um, that we have. And we have so many amazing museums, but especially we get to our art institutions. I don't think there's been historically this huge urge to gather up folks from the south and west sides and bring them down. I was working with a teacher in Inglewood. Actually, she's a principal and she was she had visited the museum when I was at Art Institute and she had a great time. I can't remember what show it was, but she'd reached out to me saying that she would love to bring some of her students there, but they just couldn't afford it. It wasn't in the budget. And I said, well, why do you need it in a budget? Because we have a bus fund. We have free admission, you know, for your for your students. But it, she didn't know. She didn't know. It was information that had never been shared with her. She's right there in Inglewood. I mean, from, I'm sure if you stood on the roof of their building, you could look and see downtown. But yet she had students in her building who had never been downtown. And so that's part of my role. My role is to be a connector, to help with those barriers, to create those pathways, to build those connections through programming, through engagement. That's so I would use connector. You know, Erica, it's funny. I also, I, when I was thinking about my sentence, it was, I went the other direction and came up with a really long sentence with lots of clauses. <laughs> but I started with, I make connections. And I think that, it, I think that's between uh, the division that I oversee, um, that is between learning and engagement and other areas of museum operation. I think the way, you know, uh, Lisa, that you talked about um, education being siloed is that's something that I actively work against. Um, every day. And I have a great opportunity to be involved in a lot of decisions, operational decisions, or at least provide input um, and represent the work of education at the table as we're shaping the institution that that we want to be. I also think that given my background in art history, I really love, I thrive on making connections between um, our collection and the exhibitions and the content in it and people. I think that that's, you know, whether those are the the people who are our educators who need the resources or pathways into the content or to, from an interpretation standpoint and thinking about the gallery experience and how we can create connections for people who will, you know, be, you know, be able to see the works. I just, I, I really love that part of my work in terms of, you know, taking something I love so much that is the art and kind of giving it this and helping to support it, its significance for people to kind of build whatever bridges that they might need uh, to find that relevance. And then I think also I really love my role in that I am, I have to build and support a team that is developing impactful programming and creating, I'm, I'm charged with collaborating to create systems that will eventually support the work um, of the museum when it's open. So I'm hoping in this role to be able to 
address some of those systemic challenges that educators have often faced in museums. Beautiful. I think, Erica, you chose all of us because there's a synergy around connection and being a, a connector. I think mine was a little middle of the road, not one word or not a lo- longer sentence, but I said, you know, my position is one where there was no playbook. There's no handbook. Nanette alluded to earlier, we're finding our way. It's almost like as if we are, you know, these pioneers trying to find this new approach to museum education and community engagement, but being a fighter, being an advocate, being tenacious. And I think, you know, you can still be diplomatic, but we are, we have to be tenacious and not afraid to disrupt um, in, in a kind way and not accept the status quo. Uh, I think, you know, we have this, as I said, this privilege of witnessing the power of our museum objects with the community and Traditionally, those communities that have not been invited, those that have been left out of the conversation, and to be able to witness what can happen, how we can forge connections with ourselves and others through museum objects, it feeds our passions. I was listening to um, Annette, and I'm sure she feels the same, especially given that the Lucas Museum is also opening in 2025. I'm shameless plugging everyone, but it's It's been very exciting working in this space with the Obama Foundation. You know, the the three neighborhoods that are kind of, I guess, surrounding the future presidential center, Woodlawn, South Shore, and Washington Park. I grew up in South Shore. I went to high school across the street in Woodlawn, and I live in Bronzeville, which is, I mean, a minute away from Washington Park. So it's three communities that deeply impact my life. And so I'm looking forward to this. I mean, we're we're building this, I, I don't even know what to call it now. It's like, it's a museum, it's, it's everything, you know, athletic center, it's a campus. But we're building this 19 acre campus with the community. And it's, it feels very different. It, it, it's a very different experience to be building something with the community, not thinking what if the community wants this or what if it's no, we are literally building it with community members, not only in mind, but their voices are being heard, doing surveys, we're we're doing previews of programming and taking feedback. We're building it with local organizations, making sure they're at the table um, and they have a say in this. So it's really exciting to be a connector in this space and watch this 19 acre campus come together in my city. That's so exciting, Erica. It is exciting. And I just want to say I'm so humbled by how generous you've all been in in your answers and just also in your approach to the, the work that you're doing. And I might impose with the last question upon your generosity and just ask if if there's, you know, one piece of advice that you might offer to emerging or really any kind of, you know, museum professionals uh, in this moment. Mine would be get engaged, get engaged in your local museums. I would say find a mentor. I wish I had had a mentor early on rather than later. <laughs> it's been great, but it's been a lot of work at this point trying to catch up um, and get at the level that my mentors, 
feel I should be. But I think having that that support of mentors and that village in this space, it's also getting to know other folks who are emerging museum professionals as well, is building that village of your peers. You know, it's one thing, this space is small. You know, I see a lot of our names and, you know, and mentioned in different ways in different spaces. And it's it's like, again, it's like this larger village. I would I would definitely encourage an emerging professional to look to create that. Yeah, I agree, Erica. For me, the first thing that came to mind was really about building relationships and making that part of your learning. You know, we we think a lot about what degrees we're going to get, what schools we're going to go to, but you learn so much from the people that you encounter along the way. And I think that I've learned, you know, so much from my peers, you know, and when, when you have good relationships with people, they can have the tough conversations with you sometimes and call you out or call you in when you need to be checked um, and haven't done things the right way. Um, and I've learned a lot from my colleagues. And, uh, you know, when they have said, you know, you did this thing and that didn't sit right with me. I think that that, you know, that only happens when people like you enough to <laughs> care about you enough to call you in. And then I also think I learned so much from the emerging professionals around me with how to frame things, talk about things, not accept the status quo. I, um, you know, as much as I have learned from mentors and people who are of previous generations who have set the table for the the opportunities that I have had, um, I think that, you know, it's really in paying attention to the people around you and, and trusting your instincts too. Often when something doesn't feel right, it isn't. So I think, and it's, and you get through those tough times when you have that village, as you said, Erica, around you. Erica and Nanette, thank you both. I, I feel as if you're speaking my language and I always appreciate when I hear th- this shared vision and that you, you both mentioned this notion of relationships. I, when I was thinking about this question, I, I considered that too, just being relentless, building relationships. You know, the work that I've been able to do is built on trust and again, finding my community, working with my community, finding those synergies. And as you said, having the trust where we can have authentic conversations, where I can check myself, I can be open and and receive, you know, what I need to hear. And uh, again, carving out time in my work, our work, understanding the true needs of our audiences, so we can create deep empathy and then channel that into action. The last thing I would add to this is to be authentic. Be authentically you. You're there. You're coming into the space for a reason. We need to, you to show up as you, not as someone else. And then I wouldn't be me without saying, you know, don't be afraid to be the troublemaker. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be me. I wouldn't be me if I didn't give that advice. Good trouble. Good trouble. Good trouble. Good trouble always. Don't be afraid to speak up. Use your voice to push back. That's one of the greatest pieces of advice that I received from someone in the museum space. You know, they told me if I'm at that table, open up my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a lot. It was a, it was coming from an elder. But I, I quickly understood why they told me that and why that was so important. Diplomatically relentless. 
there you go. I'm gonna put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> well, this has been really wonderful. And I want to thank you all so much for your candor, your expertise, and your openness in participating in this conversation. And um, I am so grateful. And I imagine that our, our listeners will be as well. So thank you once again. Thank you. It's great to talk with you all. Thank you. Thank you for having me.